The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, December 15th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how military service members can get more out of their blended retirement system. Plus, the CIA is all in on artificial intelligence, but very carefully. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the 2024 federal pay raise could become official any day now. President Biden is expected to give feds on the general schedule anyway, an average 5.2 percent boost to the paychecks starting in January. But that's not the only change to federal pay coming in 2024. There's also the issue of what nobody can ever quite figure out, locality pay. Here to explain more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And so we know about the overall planned increase that's been on the books and on the suggestion box for quite a while now, Drew. But the locality pay map changing again, I guess it changes every year. What's the latest going on there? Right. There are a couple of changes to the locality pay map coming in 2024. This is something where we first saw the recommendations for this back in December of last year. But now it's become official with some finalized regulations from the Office of Personnel Management. This means starting in January, about 33,000 federal employees in, across the country are going to be seeing higher pay raises than they would have otherwise. So while there's a 5.2% average pay raise starting in January for federal employees, that is an average. So everyone gets a little bit more or less depending on their locality pay area. So the new locality pay areas established will give feds working in these particular areas a little bit bigger pay raise. And those four localities are Fresno, Madera, Hanford, California, Reno and Fernley in Nevada, Rochester, Batavia, and Seneca Falls in New York, and then Spokane and Coeur d'Alene in Washington and Idaho. All right. And of course, question is why those places? They don't strike you as high cost areas necessarily, maybe anywhere in California, but Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, maybe there's been a run on the potato crops or something, I don't know, driving the prices up. And we got a message, which I think you answered from a reader wondering, well, you know, why not Boise? <laughs> it's expensive here, too. Yeah, that is a great question, Tom. And that question from the reader as well about, you know, why Spokane, Washington, why these other areas and not other areas, right? So the way that that process works is there's a lot of steps in it. So as I mentioned, last December, what happened was the Federal Salary Council, which is a panel of several different federal pay experts. This includes union leaders and other stakeholders in federal pay. They basically listed out some recommendations and they chose these four areas to be included as the new locality pay areas. Now, that's not to say that Boise, Idaho, for example, couldn't become its own locality pay area sometime in the future. The council generally looks at a lot of different areas as what they call research areas. And if there's found to be a pay disparity in these areas for an extended period of time, at least three years or more, I believe it is, then that can be considered as a new locality pay area. There's still a couple more steps in the process after that. It is kind of a long process, but, you know, that's just that's kind of generally how it works. Right. And so that portion of average pay increases, which is maybe a tenth of the total or 20 percent of the total, that's what those people would get 
Everyone else gets the 80% of the pay raise. But if you're in locality pay, you get that extra 20% of the raise. Right. So, for example, let's take the pay raise for 2024. It's going to be an average of 5.2%. The way that's broken down is you have a 4.7% base pay raise. This is something that every federal employee or most federal employees on the general schedule will see added to their paycheck in 2024. Then depending on what locality you're in, you get an average of a 0.5% locality pay adjustment. So this means, you know, for example, some higher cost of living areas, Seattle, Washington, D.C., New York City, et cetera, these ones will get probably a little bit more than, than a, five, a 0.5% adjustment. Other more rural areas, those who aren't in a specified locality pay area are going to see a little bit lower, so maybe a little bit less than that 0.5% average you know, it just depends on where you work, but generally it'll be around 5.2% in the end. And the Office of Personnel Management did get some other questions besides about Boise, Idaho, which was our question, on the new localities. And what are they saying about this? What are they doing to clarify? So OPM, at the end of the process for when new locality pay areas are established, they issued proposed regulations and then they finalized those regulations when they issued the proposed regulations this time around for the new the four new pay locality areas starting in 2024 a couple people saw you know uh, commenters on those proposed rules saw between the proposal and the final rule some counties weren't specifically listed out in the final rules whereas they were mentioned in the proposed rules so then the question of course becomes hey what happened to this one county is it not going to be included in the locality pay area OPM said, you know, it did get a lot of questions about that, but at the end of the day, those counties that weren't explicitly mentioned will still be included. It's just that OPM didn't necessarily need to list them out. They just said the general area. So there's a little bit of technical language there, but rest assured, OPM will have all of that information on its website uh, once everything goes through at the end of the month. My theory is that they go to the different areas and see how much a beer costs at, at the local tavern happy hour. And that can tell you whether it's a high-cost area or someplace out on the hustings that, heck, they don't need locality pay. You know, a couple of uh, pickled eggs and a beer is only 5 bucks. I guess that's that's one way to look at it. I, you know, we'd have to maybe map out where different breweries are versus locality pay areas. But it's one perspective, I suppose. You know, as I wrote last year and someone wrote to me and said it was one of their favorite lines is, where microbrews come in, then locality pay is sure to follow. And... And I guess that's the gestalt. None of this is final yet. I mean, what has to happen specifically before this becomes law? Well, we are very close to the end of this process now, Tom. We'll see President Joe Biden, assuming nothing happens in Congress. In the meantime, he will sign off on an executive order by the end of December. This usually happens really around the last week of the month. Once that executive order is signed off, then OPM will publish pay tables on its website. So that'll detail exactly all of the different locality pay areas and what each pay raise will be for each of those areas. Then the pay adjustments will take effect in the first full pay period of 2024 in January. And by the way, this question also comes up every year, and I know you know the answer. Your locality pay depends on where your federal office is that you report to or report into or where you live. It is based on where you work. Right. So the question then becomes, if your office is in Boise, 
and you decide to telework from New York City, you're not going to get locality pay because Boise doesn't have it. That is a great question. Uh, it's something that definitely a lot of members of Congress are questioning about uh, how that all works with telework. Um, but generally, as things stand right now, it's based on your uh, home base, like work location. Right. So if there's anyone in New York City or Washington, D.C. listening and hearing us who teleworks to Boise, give us a holler because I'd like to know what your life is like. But in the meantime, I, I don't think there's too many people that are doing that particular city pair. I wonder if that's even a GSA flight city pair, New York City to Boise. I'm sure can get from LaGuardia to Boise nonstop. All right. Anything else people need to know, Drew? I think that about covers it, Tom. Just look out for President Joe Biden to sign off on that by the end of the month, and then we'll see those new paychecks starting in January. And you'll report on it before the ink is dry. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the CIA is all in on artificial intelligence, but very carefully. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. CIA stands for Central Intelligence Agency, backwards, AIC, could be Artificial Intelligence Center. Now, the CIA is working with artificial intelligence on a number of fronts, and the agency might be in a hurry, but officials say they're taking on AI carefully. Here's an excerpt from my recent interview with the CIA's director of AI, Lakshmi Raman. When you have ML ops in the model of SecDevOps for creating machine learning or AI applications and models, there is something about AI and ML that makes it different from ordinary software application development that you need to be extra careful of and have more rigorous, say, process and governance in place. Fair to say? Oh, I mean, yeah. And it, and I, I hope that we have rigorous process and governance against, you know, all. I hope that people would see that we have rigorous processes and governance around all of our systems, uh, AI or not. But I think um, when we're working sometimes with software that or AI, that is kind of more inherently probabilistic, vice more general software, which is deterministic. Obviously, there are things we have to be thinking about, like I said earlier, such as like, you know, the, the, uh, the test and evaluation, right? We have to make sure we have the right tooling and training and personnel in place to be able to do that, who understand how to do that and what it means. Same thing after deployment, when we implement monitoring, we have to make sure that people are looking at the right things and ensuring that we have the right output coming out to detect things like model drift or a change in quality, right? Because, again, that might mean unexpected inputs. That might need, mean that we have to retrain. And those are all of the things we have to look for. You're right. At the end, AI systems are software, and it makes sense to continue to apply best practices, um, but we have to make sure that those we extend those practices and principles to account for things that are AI-specific. Yeah, that idea of model drift comes up a lot. And mm -hmm. I imagine it's a difficult thing to track because it would really require the subject matter experts who are your users of these algorithms and models to say, wait a minute, this doesn't really makes sense in my experience. There's no objective way, or is there, of measuring to say, golly, this one's out of band. Let's go, let's go look 
at this this model and see what we need to do to adjust. You know, model drift really just means data drift, right? And it and it is always a problem when we build and use AI models. And um, in fact, you know, AI models, any models that are used over time. So, you know, we are working, you know, with respect to trying to figure out our own solutions in this space, but also to understand how industry is tackling this and adapt best practices for our systems and use cases. This is something that, again, we're building into our uh, overarching AI governance plan and something that we will continuously be looking at and reevaluating um, so we can have the best implementation in place. So this is something we definitely have a lot of focus and attention on. And with respect to the specific use cases for AI and machine learning, maybe describe the process by which you arrive at those, because I imagine the user community, those on the mission front lines, analysts and officers and so forth, really have to be part of all that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Tom. Regardless of, it, it's, it's really important that we start to, you know, we're in the intelligence community, tradecraft is a big deal, right? How we do our jobs is a big deal. And it, it has to be a big deal because it there's risk and um, we're giving our um, insights to policymakers, right? So the stakes are high. And so it's very important that when we're using AI, AI systems, to help our officers and to to start to move to collaborate with our officers, right? We need to make sure that their tradecraft is incorporating this new, sometimes novel technology that they might not have already used, or they've been using it for a while and things are shifting. And so, crosswalking tradecraft, right? Special cadre tradecraft with AI is incredibly important, and and augmenting training for AI all the way from our general workforce to our senior leaders so they understand how it can help them do their jobs is also a huge focus of the work we're doing at the agency. And could you maybe discuss in the context of model exchanges how much interagency sharing is possible or is going on within the IC. You know, you've got a diverse group there, everything from the, you know, the yeah. DEA to the NGA, and there's some confluence, but there's a lot of differences. Are you able to create models and share them in a model exchange that where DEA, for example, might find something useful that the CIA has developed, only, you know, they're going to use different data? Yeah, we actually have a model exchange deployed out to the for use and sharing of models by the intelligence community. Um, it's been out there for, gosh, I want to say a couple of years. Um, and, and we are, you know, we're, you know, continue to, you know, augment the capabilities available in that exchange, including, you know, sometimes even just allowing users to bring data and leverage uh, a model. Right, with that's available within that exchange. Also important within that exchange are things like model cards, which we think are very important to drive that transparency. So people, can, we can leverage these capabilities responsibly and with explainability. Um, and I think that also helps build trust within the intelligence community for what they're using. Now we also work very closely uh, with our IC partners, NSA, NGA, DIA others, right, and also with the ODNI um, who, you know, provide 
you know, are doing a lot of work to also drive IC-wide collaboration and governance and policy. So we we continue um, to augment our IC collaboration in this space. And as a long-term software person yourself, I think you've been more than mm-hmm. 20 years at the CIA in various mm-hmm. software-related roles. What's it like with the AI, and you probably knew about AI 20 years ago, we all did, but now mm-hmm. it's suddenly you know, reached that critical mass, you might say, the, you know, the fission point, and it's really oh coming on strong. What's it like? Tom, Tom, it's so exciting. I started this job in January 2022, and you know, there was already a huge focus uh, on technology uh, at the agency. Uh, our agency had hired, had established a new transnational and technology mission center. We had hired a new CTO. I had come into this job establishing my office. And then, so things were already starting to move. And then November 2022, December, late 2022, right, we, ChatGPT came out. And, and then it really uh, caught the world by storm, right? And, and candidly, right, the intelligence, generative AI caught the intelligence community by storm. So it's really um, an exciting time to be in this space. Uh, and I'm really excited to be helping uh, the agency and the intelligence community make progress in this space. And because this is coming on so strong, can you keep up? Because there's a lot of talent needed to keep that DevOps pipeline for ML and AI going. You know, Tom, that's, that's exactly right. The talent bottleneck is a huge challenge for us. And we at the agency have an incredibly talented uh, AI practitioner workforce, data scientists, analytic methodologists business analysts, right? They are really top of the line. But boy, does the demand for their services exceed exceed the supply of, you know, there's just, they're they're so heavily in demand. So we are really working hard to extend partnership. It's a key priority of our AI strategy, and we are working hard to extend partnership to our industry partners um, and to our academic partners. Uh, to um, national labs, and obviously within the IC and USG itself, so that we can really bring the best solutions there are to bear to our intelligence mission. Lakshmi Rahman, Director of Artificial Intelligence at the CIA. We'll post the interview in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com, where you can search insights. Still to come, this agency has a tough time dialing in telecom modernization. But first how service members can get more out of their blended retirement system. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. More than a million military service members participate in the so-called blended retirement system. It lets them make TSP-style savings contributions that are portable. The funds go with them when they leave the military. But there's more to financial readiness, something to think about in a high-spending season like we're in now. For some ideas, we turn to the president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association, Mike Meese. Mike, good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. 
And let's talk about the blended retirement system. This has been around a few years, but it seems to be picking up lately. It has. It started in 2018 when Congress made an adjustment, the first real big adjustment to the military retirement system in uh, several decades, where new members who come into the military uh, have a slightly smaller uh retirement if they stay for a full 20 years, but the federal government contributes to their uh, 401k-like thrift savings plan, which is the blended retirement uh, part of that, uh, so that they end up with something, even if they only serve like a three-year, four-year enlistment, they can take some retirement savings with them. It sounds like the best benefit is just developing the habit of putting away that money because Let's face it, when you're a new member of the military, you ain't earning that all that much. That's right. And uh, what uh, the way it's designed is the government will automatically contribute 1%, and then it will match up to 5%. And so we just crossed over, as you mentioned, uh, more people are actually participating in the blended retirement system, 1.3 million service members, than were participating in the uh, old system uh, before. And that has caused people to take a look at this and realize how valuable it truly is. That leads to the idea of keeping and hanging on to the money you should in a season where even military service members, if they walk into a PX, are bombarded to say nothing of what comes through on social media with offers to how to part with your money in this holiday season (laughs) because everything's on sale. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to kind of have a perspective over the last several years coming out of COVID. Two and three years ago, we weren't traveling. People had more money. You got money from the federal government. So Christmas gifts got a little bit bigger because you felt kind of bad not being able to visit your loved ones uh, during the holidays. And now people can travel, but those travel costs are up. People can uh, uh, spend money. Uh, and they're putting an increasing amount on their credit cards. So it's important for people to have a budget, maintain a good perspective, perhaps do a little bit of the gift sharing where you're drawing gifts and not necessarily getting one for every other relative that you have, like people had the capacity to do more during COVID. Yes, I understand uh, by reading the latest stats that the total credit card debt of people in the United States is more than a trillion dollars right now. And service members are part of that, I'm sure. It's increasing. And actually, what was good was it was being paid down during COVID as people had more dollars and were not spending more. And now it's going right back up again. As a service member, especially at the end of the year, since you're on a fixed income, it's important to, as much as you possibly can, keep that spending within reason. People will still appreciate you being home for the holidays and doing all that kind of stuff, but you don't need to spend quite as much on lavish gifts. Yeah, I was going to say, what are some of the other good pieces of advice, particularly for military members at this time of year, because uh, they sometimes are more vulnerable to financial, I don't know, not so much scams, but offers that aren't all that useful to them? That's right. Well, it's first uh, being disciplined and making sure that you and uh, your spouse, others in your family are keeping within your spending limits. And then there's a lot of things to do at the end of the year to, as we mentioned with the blended retirement system, if you're not contributing the full 5% to that match, now's the time to take a look at that and be sure that you can do that. It's also important for people that have a little bit more income to look at their charitable contributions and be sure that for the charities that they want to contribute to, that they contribute 
uh, what they want to do. But again, you get lots and lots and lots of solicitations for that. You don't want to overspend. We're speaking with Mike Meese. He's president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. And getting back to the topic of the uh, TSP-like or the 401k-like blended retirement contributions, is there a way that as people progress year to year, like there are on some plans, a way to automatically up your contribution percentage year after year so that if you start yeah. at 1 or 2%, by the time you're a little bit better paid, a little bit more established, it might be up to 4 or 5%, and you get that sense of acceleration there? Exactly. The automatic contribution used to be just at 3%. Now the automatic contribution is at 5%, which is the maximum amount to get the match. What's important, though, is you can actually contribute more than that, and it will continue to grow. Deferring that savings uh, will take advantage of the fact that you have compound interest. The thrift savings plan has done particularly well in the various funds, as you may have seen this year. The C fund is up, I just noticed, 13% uh, over the last year, which is a great uh, opportunity for people to save even beyond the amount that they are matched by the federal government. So if you can save 5%, you absolutely should do that to get the matching. But if you can up that by 6% or 7%, that can help you significantly in the long run. Also, with interest rates high, I mean, it's expensive to buy a home now and so forth relative to a few years ago. But on the other hand, there are instruments you can get from financial institutions now that pay that 5%. And that's something, especially for a young military member, doesn't remember the days of 13% CDs and so forth that we had 40 years ago or so. But that's a newly emergent way to boost your savings, isn't it? Yeah. A great example is recognize that you're going to have to pay more for your automobile. Automobiles are lasting longer. So when that car payment ends, continue to pay yourself that car payment so that the next time you have to buy a car, you can put a lot more down. A lot more of that can be in cash. So instead of paying the bank a lot of interest, you're actually paying yourself a lot of interest through either a CD or a high interest money market that you can get from many good, reputable banks. Yeah. I mean, those didn't exist a few years ago. The last time they were even around was, you know, when you and I were young and you had CDs (laughs) and wow, but we've had inflation and now we have inflation in interest rates. So that's that's something that... And people should take advantage of that and be sure that they're uh, in... uh, Don't just have, if you're only making 0% or 1% on your checking account, you probably haven't looked at the opportunities that you have to be able to put that into earning just a little bit more interest can go a long ways. And again, on the topic of service members and what they might find appealing, let's say, at this time of year, especially in the case of vehicles, and they often tend to like, you know, nice vehicles, I uh, had to resist the urge to put down on a trade-in motorcycle the other day because I fell in love with one in the dealer and, uh, you know, the cool hand of logic finally grabbed my arm away. But sometimes if you're younger, you may not be able to resist that F-150 with the large wheels. And those are expensive and auto companies are offering and and car loaners are offering seven and even eight-year loans. That sounds like a terrible trap. No, and recognize how much you're going to be committed to that. Plus, look at the total cost of driving that automobile when you look at the insurance uh, for that expensive an automobile may be adding several hundred dollars to your monthly payments in addition to the cost uh, of the uh, automobile payment over time. And on the issue of that's close to home to AFMA, 
anything new in life insurance that people should know about these days? Well, the good news is the federal government has expanded the coverage from 400000 to 500000 But if you are married, and ha- especially if you have any children, that amount is still not enough. And so that's why we find a lot of people turning to AFMA and other life insurance providers to be able to get some supplemental insurance. We can do that actually at less costs than SGLI. And for veterans who leave, since SGLI uh, ends uh, when you leave the service, it's really important to turn to AFMA or somebody else to be able to get life insurance to protect your family even after you leave the service. SGLI is? That's the service members group life insurance that is provided for. You pay for it, uh, but the government provides that to you without any medical underwriting. We do the same kind of thing, actually, at a little bit less cost, and that's why we encourage folks to look at that at AFMA.com, A-A-F-M-A-A.com. All right. In the meantime, service members, you know, watch your wallets and, you know, tread slowly right now. That's right. Have a great holiday season, but uh, do that within your budget. Mike Meese is president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Tom. Have a great uh, holiday season and Happy New Year. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Save the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this agency has a tough time dialing in telecom modernization. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Crucial but dated communications technology systems at the U.S. Mint are in danger of being cut off from the outside world. Why? These are systems that run functions like elevators and fire alarms. They've operated on copper wire telephone lines for, oh, about the last 100 years. They don't adapt so well, though, to the modern Internet infrastructure. Jason Mervin is a lead IT specialist at the U.S. Mint at West Point, New York. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about why these systems are now at risk at the Mint and many other agencies. One of the most important directives I have is make make sure things stay up. I mean, you don't want to suddenly not get dial tone. And in keeping with that, we have to make sure that the Mint has the best redundancy and stability and the ability to continue operations as possible. And sad to say, the, the tier one companies, which are the big, the big telephone companies, the ones people are most familiar with are AT&T and Verizon, but there's also one called GTT, which is what uh, Mettel was reselling for us. Those are simply not making the offer of, of supporting copper any longer. And it's because the technology has moved on sufficiently, they don't want to have to support the copper either. And having seen, unfortunately now, my fair share of, of dusty telephone cabinets, you can kind of realize why they don't have the ability. They don't want to keep people trained on obsolete skills. It's only the, the old bear in the woods kind of people who have the skills any longer. So, for example, when it came to ADSL lines, which I can't even rattle off the acronym, uh, what, what the acronym means, basically all of ours here at West Point are wired with what's called spin-down connectors. And we went through four separate contractors trying to find anybody who knew how to wire one of these spin-down connectors. And, you know, all these kids that, you know, it's not that they don't know what they're doing, but they know what they're doing on regular copper 
networking cable, not on these archaic lines with different gauges. The spin down connector, as it happens, is a way of, of wrapping the wire with a special tool around a post. And you'll only see them in the in the most ancient telephone closets out there. Well, I now have a spin down tool just in case a Verizon tech gave me one and said, hey, you know, if you ever run into this again, just use this. Don't try to don't try to find somebody because you won't. So it's uh, it, it's because the technology has simply moved on so much. Everything is wired with Cat5, Cat6, uh, fiber. You know, nobody's really using these this old old stuff any longer. We have a a device which extends our connections out from West Point uh, from from the uh, the main post at West Point. Which, you know, West Point is an Army post as well. And what passes for the central office for a tel- telephone group is in a old basement level of one of the castle type buildings at West Point. Well, that thing has a matched unit, which we basically are able to transfer our copper along a fiber connection to get the three miles out here. And that device has been here as long as I've been in New York, which is over 23 years at this point in time. So, you know, when you're dealing with this ancient equipment, it's really hard to get support for it. It's really hard to find the parts for it. If you find the parts, chances are they're resold. They're resold. They're not going to be manufactured any longer. So it's just it's a combination. I'm not going to say it's a perfect storm, but it just gets harder and harder. And it's no wonder that the that the tier one carriers just don't want to be bothered with it anymore. The other challenge, though, at the same time, is you have a lot of systems that need to rely on copper wire. The SCADA systems, the fire alarms, the elevators. So you have to find the right balance to say, okay, how do we get rid of these old technologies, but still have these older technologies that rely on them work. Are you going through that now too? Is that part of this process? Well, some of that's outside of my purview because I'm I'm only one of the people working this issue from the larger IT infrastructure and production, uh, which is where we actually do the metal stamping and the and the and the fabrication. That all is for the vast majority of the equipment is all on standard networking already. It's not using telephone capabilities any longer. Uh, there's a couple. Uh, most of the time, it's things that we have to arrange a way to have a contractor either dial in or have some sort of remote access. Again, the Mint it has to be very secure facilities. Um, and so we're actually implementing some modular solutions, which are a combination of firewall, tunneling device, and a couple of other things in order to enable point-to-point connectivity. So we really don't rely on the telecommunications sector any longer when it comes to that stuff, which is a very good thing in a lot of ways. If you if you move away from the old telecom mentality and move towards networking technologies and internet-enabled um, activity, then you're able to deal with far more solutions, far more uh, people with the skill set and things of that nature. One of the things when you talk about the different sets of communications. I mean, I think you know we're on we're using Teams. You know, people obviously can't see that, but that's a good example. Uh, there's a whole lot of different technologies that are out there. Is your job part of trying to find the balance between okay, how do we switch to these new ones, but also support the current mints? You, you mentioned earlier, you don't want anything to break, and if you break something, that's a lot worse than maybe dealing with the old technology. How are you finding that striking that right balance? Happily, I am not the only person involved in moving forward. This is not exactly an extra duty. I kind of was landed this as a, hey, we need to have somebody good taking care of this stuff and not to, to you know, shine my own image here, but I have 
wound up dealing with technology like this, a lot of old technology. So it's more we need to make sure that the old technology is maintained while we move on to the newer stuff that we can. And of course, some of that is going to be you, you have to maintain old technology for a lot longer than you wanted to. And that's one of the things that unfortunately the Mint winds up having to do. Even though we have a lot more leeway with spending, we have to make sure that we have people who are able to have the new project work and the new product is able to to meet the needs both internal and external customers have. And so, for example, one of the things that kind of spills over a little bit is um, electronic messaging, because some of that used to be on older audiovisual technology, and that means telecom. So, like all these old things like tri-bri boards and ISDN lines and things like that. Some of that stuff, uh, which I'd had to deal with even before coming to the Mint. That stuff is so obsolete or so passe now that you wind up trying to find a good solution on the network and you wind up going through a, a couple of different ones before you actually get one that meets your needs. Sometimes I wind up having to keep the old solution out there for a number of years before we find a good solution going forward. A fine example of that was the, the police had an old mesh network made out of old T1 lines. And those T1 lines wound up staying up, I think a total of four years past their expected end of, end of service. So, you know, having to maintain this, this fragile mesh network rather than being able to transfer to the internet is one of those things that sometimes, you know, people don't think about the challenges maintaining the back end, but they're, they're pretty significant. Let me back up, maybe take the 50,000 foot view for a second, Jason, because if someone's listening to this and going, okay, well, that's Mint has its own problem. I'm not part of Mint, right? Or I'm, I'm different. Is this POTS issue, as far as you can tell, as far as you, if you've talked to others around the community, is this an issue every agency is facing in one way or another? Again, I know you can't speak for every agency, but this is not just a Mint-only issue is, is the better question. No, it's, it's definitely not Mint-only. Our Mint telecom engineer had sent me a, um, some information because when we first encountered this, we, we knew it was out there. We, we had actually worked on the contract and I, when I worked on the contract back in 2018, we knew this was something that was in the offing eventually. It is something which is not on everybody's radar. It is something that's going to impact everybody because basically the tier one carriers are going to stop agreeing to provide pot service. And it's not that they have to, but they are going to be given commercial you know, directives from their management. We aren't going to support POTS because the amount of money we have to sink into doing so is not economical. We're going to spin off our POTS service to somebody else. And in most cases, that's the local equipment carrier. Jason Mervin, lead IT specialist for the U.S. Mint at West Point, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO. Subscribe at federalnewsnetwork.com. Plans for a new FBI headquarters have fallen apart, just as the current downtown headquarters building is falling apart. The FBI's J. Edgar Hoover building is showing its age, with nets around the perimeter to keep chunks of concrete from falling off and hitting pedestrians. Inside, parts of the plumbing and other infrastructure are falling out of the ceiling, dropping onto employees' desks. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And, well, this building has been deteriorating, Jory. Is this because... They have just neglected it, anticipating plans for a new building? Basically, yes. They've known that for a while now, the J. Edgar Hoover building has been on borrowed time. For about 15 years, they have 
deferred on the kind of long-term maintenance you expect for a building that's going to be around for a long period of time. They've done the necessary repairs when they come up, but that has led to increased costs, and that's just led to a building that FBI officials say has just not been able to keep up with the mission or the needs of FBI employees. To just give you a sense of things here, if you've walked by it recently, it's got all this netting, it's in rough shape, and inside it's not much better. We heard recently from Nick Demos. He's the assistant director of the FBI's Finance and Facilities Division. He recently told members of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee that since 2011, the FBI has spent $75 million just to avoid a catastrophic breakdown of its water infrastructure at this building. Pipe bursts and plumbing challenges are commonplace, leading to the damage of FBI space, IT, and records. JEH power and network infrastructure challenges are ever-present, resulting in disruptions to connectivity needed to coordinate FBI cases nationwide. And I suppose there's rodents in there, too. They don't talk about that much. But I'll bet you there's rats, because you see them in the parking spaces downtown quite often. And so the employees must be miserable in there. Well, it's a challenge for them. You know, in addition to worrying about chunks of concrete potentially falling on their desks, the agency has, in addition to these other kinds of deferred maintenance things, they've been able to make some incremental security improvements over the years, but not the kinds of things, again, that for a building of this sensitive nature that they would like to have. And what Demo says is that in some large part here, they're really just constrained by the 1974 construction of the Hoover Building. Knowing that this conversation has been ongoing uh, about a new facility, we want to invest in the building to ensure that we're keeping it stable and safe, and at the same time, not invest too much funding such that it would be imprudent knowing that there's ultimately a vision to leave the facility. Yeah, ultimately a vision. And we should point out it took approximately 37 or 40 years between proposal of the J. Edgar Hoover building from when the FBI moved out of the old Justice Department building into this new building. It was from the 40s to whenever, 71, 2 or so in that era. So the FBI has a proud history of not being able to move very quickly in terms of facilities. Now, this has all been before Capitol Hill Lots of hearings lately on the plan that GSA promulgated to move the FBI to Greenbelt, Maryland. Boy, it got ugly, huh? It got ugly very quickly. Uh, Very soon after GSA made this final announcement that it was going to build a new FBI headquarters in Greenbelt, Maryland, one of three final sites, we heard from the FBI director himself, Chris Wray, and Virginia lawmakers crying foul about the process, not necessarily the final decision, but the process that led to it. To come through a lot of backstory very quickly here, this was a process that went through three career employees, two from GSA and one from the FBI. They looked at all the facts and all the criteria, and they decided, you know what, we should actually build this in Springfield, Virginia, this new FBI headquarters. But that wasn't the final decision. That went to the former Public Building Service Commissioner, Nina Albert, and she had the final say on where this building was going to go, and she decided on Greenbelt, Maryland. Now what Ray and others have pointed out here is that Albert is a former Washington Metro Area Transit Authority executive, and Wamata owns the parcel of land where this new FBI headquarters would be built. So that raised some questions here from parties who are concerned by all of this. Nina Albert was on the board of Wamata. And she's not anymore, correct? No, no. And Wamata owns the land where the FBI headquarters might still go, right? That is correct, yeah. So how would Nina Albert personally benefit 
when she's an ex-member of the WMATA board from WMATA selling land to the federal government or leasing land to the federal government for the FBI. I don't get the conflict of interest. Well, I think the conflict of interest from people who say that there could potentially be one is just that uh, given her work history, you know, former, you know, people that she still keeps in contact with that, you know, that could be an area where the fix is in from these people who allege this sort of thing. And Demos was really clear to point out to lawmakers that the FBI does not have concerns with Greenbelt as a facility. You know, again, they are not calling foul at the ultimate decision here, but they want to make sure that the process is on the up and up here. And and Demos did tell lawmakers as such that Greenbelt is not an issue here, but they want to make sure that they vet everything possible before construction begins. So the FBI doesn't mind Greenbelt. They just say that Nina Albert had a conflict of interest and that the process was bad in that she overruled the other two people that would have had this decision to be made. I think the FBI is very careful to point out that they're not even casting aspersions at Albert here, that they want to make sure that if there's even the slightest whiff of impropriety here, that they vet it as thoroughly as possible. And I will point out that GSA Inspector General here is looking into this decision and making sure that all of the things that should have been looked at were considered. Well, the FBI is not making that allegation. They just brought the possibility to friendly members of Congress from Virginia, and they brought it up. The FBI is politicking here, you might say. Well, this has been a political issue from the very beginning here, and you know, it certainly does tie back in ways to the mission that we've talked about, but it's been a tangled saga throughout. Well, maybe Ted Leonsis could build an FBI headquarters next to where he's going to build the Wizards and the Bullets place to play down there in Alexandria. I'm just kidding. But I think the FBI, didn't they secretly prefer Springfield because it's close to Quantico, closer to Quantico, where their big training facility is? Yeah, besides the Hoover building, Quantico is the biggest parcel of FBI property. They have the FBI training academy down there. Demos and other officials have not been you know, quiet about that part, that they do prefer having kind of a cluster of all these facilities nearby, that they really do prefer being close to the DOJ's headquarters, being close to Congress when they are asked to testify. And even in this telework era, they really do need these face-to-face meetings. They do need the secure facilities to conduct all this business. So they, again, leave it on good authority for GSA to pick the best home for them. But this is a thing they do prioritize and a thing they do value. Now, is there anything to stop the forward motion of the plan to build the new place in Greenbelt Or does Congress have to step in and have they said they're going to prevent appropriations for it happening until the inspector general reports come out? Because the IG reports don't stop anything necessarily. No, but I mean, appropriations, you hit the nail on the head here that this is a project that still needs a healthy majority of this funding still needs to come through here. And if there are entire delegations from states that are concerned about the process of this, then you really need that concerned to be ironed out before the money starts flowing here. And that's exactly what's happening. You know, Virginia lawmakers want to see this IG report and see everything spelled out before they appropriate any dollars here. But Maryland lawmakers don't care. They, they would vote for it tomorrow. So it's possible that the Virginia concerns could be nullified just by the rest of the... It's also interesting from a political standpoint, they're all Democrats. It's not a Democratic, Republican, left-right type of issue. It's a river one side, river the other side issue. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a case where all politics are local. Well said. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And he's been covering this steadily. Check it out at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com. 
or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 